The following recording is from the pulpit at Northwest Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida. For more sermons, please visit our website, nwbcbradenton.org. We'd also love to hear how you have been blessed by this ministry, so please let us know by emailing us at office at nwbcbradenton.org. What we saw, what we've been seeing as we began chapter 10 last week, is that Paul has given warnings to the Corinthian church. And he does this by using Israel in the wilderness as examples. The Corinthians were feeling a little too free, if you know what I mean. They think that they, being in Christ, thought they could play around with sin to the point where it wouldn't affect them. That they had the liberty to do certain things and have it not be sin. And this was... um, detrimental to the life of their church and health and unity as well. So Paul, in telling these Corinthians, yeah, in some of these things you do have liberty, but don't let your liberty trip you up. Liberty is a good thing, but liberty could also be your worst enemy. And he used Israel as an example, as a people who had everything. They had Moses. They had the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They had miracles like the parting of the Red Sea. They were fed in the wilderness with manna. They had received water in the wilderness. They were given a promised land. And yet in spite of all that blessing, the Corinthians, I mean the Israelites, still fell down. Only two of that Egyptian exodus generation made it to the promised land. And they were overthrown, many were overthrown in the wilderness. They died underneath God's judgment. And in a similar way, the Corinthians have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation from sin, the Lord's Supper, promise of a heaven. But in the same way, even though they have so many blessings, they must also heed the warnings of a liberty that can trip them up and prevent them from finishing well. And that's what we saw last week. In verse 6, Paul tells us, Now these things, talking about those Israelites, took place as examples for us. What we read in the Old Testament is historical. It literally happened. But we also need to use it as an example to teach us what to do and what not to do. And the number one thing that we must learn from them is this. That we might not desire evil. As they did. The word desire here is the word which means a craving or lusting. That they may not crave evil as they did. And the Israelites desired and craved a lot of evil. A lot of sin. The people that God rescued from Egypt. It was not enough for them. For even though they were freed from being slaves in Egypt, they desired to go back. They craved their old life. They desired the things they used to do, even though they were slaves. Even though they were mistreated and abused, they much desired that old life. Oh, I wish we could do the things we used to do. That is just mind-blowing to think about. They crave their former life. And Numbers 11, for example. Numbers 11, we see them say such things. In Numbers 11, 4 through 7. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. This is what Paul's referring to. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that it cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And the word manna, they named because it means, what is it? (laughs) What is it? Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedulum. And so here, God fed them with manna. They had everything they needed. Water, manna, God. And in spite of all that blessing, and they were free. Oh, we wish we were in Egypt where we had fish. And we'd have to pay for groceries. 
Oh, that was the good life. You were slaves. Do not desire your old life. This is Paul's warning to them. We need to learn from them that we may not desire evil as they did. Even though they were slaves of Pharaoh, they craved the comforts of their slave life. They'd rather be slaves to Pharaoh who had a lot to eat than free children of the true God in the wilderness eating manna every day. The Israelites craved their former life, which was evil. Paul says, don't you be like them. You have been set free from sin. Run from sin. Don't crave it. Don't desire it. And this is why repentance is a key part of the Christian life. When someone becomes a Christian, we are commanded to flee and to run from sin. And not to live in it any longer. Not to dwell in it. Not to make room for it. But we are to run from the desires of our flesh. The old life. And all of us can talk about our old life. And the good thing about God's grace is that it's our old life. And if it creeps up into be our present life, then we better be repenting of it to show the fruit of our salvation. If not, we need to examine where our heart is with God. Repentance is a big key of the Christian life. This is why, for example, let's just say a drunk. Even though we see in the New Testament, and there's disagreement about this, and that's okay. Even though, even though we have freedom in Christ, we're not forbidden to drink alcohol. However, we are forbidden to get drunk. However, a drunk who lived that kind of life before probably should flee from alcohol altogether. So that his flesh does not crave and go back to those days where he was drinking his worries away. Run away so they may not think about how the alcohol made them feel. And made them forget about stuff and numb their pain. We need to run away from that, not crave the former life. Or perhaps a person who struggles with lust shouldn't play around with situations or let their eyes wander in an environment where they're going to be tempted to lust. They might be craving some of their old life, some of that temporary satisfaction they once had, that lust brought to them. But now that they are free in Christ, they are not to crave that life anymore, but to run after Christ and to run away from their sin. This is the warnings that Paul is given to the Corinthians. The Israelites craved after their former life. And as a result, many of them were overthrown in the wilderness. He says that in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the word overthrown here is a very graphic word in the Hebrew. It literally means the bodies are strewn around. Like spread around. Like a massacre. And if you think that is a little too graphic, Paul's about to give examples of just that. Because now after he says that their bodies are overthrown in the wilderness, and only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, from that generation make it to the promised land, he gives examples of how they were overthrown. And this is to serve as a warning to the Corinthians that you don't play with sin. You don't mess around. Don't let your liberty take you so close to the fire that you're going to get burned. In verse 7, this is what he says. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here Paul is quoting from the incident in Exodus 32. He's going to give three examples. I'm going to give you four examples. Paul gives you three. I'll explain why my math doesn't add up three, four. I know, three is not four. But I'm going to show you four. Uh, will you just bear with me. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In Exodus 32 is the golden calf incident, is what this refers to. 
In Exodus 32, verse 4, read with me. And he received the gold from their hand, Aaron, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Meanwhile, Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And the commandment is do not make any graven image of God or worship any other gods. And here's Israel down below while Moses is getting the law. What? Making themselves idols. Fashioning gods out of their hands. And not only that, saying that this golden calf is the gods that took us out of Egypt. Blasphemous. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? Whoa. And whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh, in the Hebrew. They made the golden calf and said, these are the gods, the Egyptian gods which rescued us from Egypt. That doesn't make sense. And tomorrow we will celebrate these gods by a party for the Lord. Wow. And Paul's end, uh, let me keep reading. And they rose up, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is what Paul quotes from is Exodus 32. John MacArthur says in his commentary, the Hebrew word here, rose up to play. I mean, it sounds innocent, right? Rose up to play. Well, it wasn't so innocent in the Hebrew connotation of the word. The word rose up to play involves or allows for the inclusion of drunken and immoral activities so common in the worship of idolatrous fertility cults. So essentially what they were doing was having a big party of sexual immorality. They were committing great sexual sin while Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, worshiping God by saying that the gods of Egypt rescued them from Egypt, having a drunken, sexual, perverse party. This is what Paul says. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, to fornicate with one another. Paul's warning them. And the reason Paul uses this is, remember, the Corinthian church has been struggling with the matters of sexuality. Some of them are being a little too free with their sexuality. Some of them are being a little too strict with their sexuality. Those who are married. We saw that in chapter 7. But Paul is using this as a warning to those who are struggling with sexual immorality. To be a warning to them. These people who did this were overthrown in the wilderness. Their bodies were spread around the desert. They were idolaters. They were sexual perverts who worshipped Yahweh with these perverse acts that were reserved for the most ugly fertility gods in Egypt. How dare they? They were worshipping God. They were rationalizing. Well, this is Yahweh. This is for Yahweh. No, no, you can't do that. They brought their idolatry into their daily life. Their idolatry, remember, they lived in Egypt for 400 years. God rescues them from Egypt. They're supposed to leave Egypt behind. And what do they do? They bring Egypt with them. See, repentance in the Christian life is leaving your Egypt behind. And now as you march towards the promised land, you are getting Egypt out of you. That's sanctification. God is growing you, maturing you, calling you to holiness, refining you, purifying you. You still got a little bit of Egypt in you. So do I. But every day as we live our Christian lives, we should have a little less Egypt in us as we turn from our sin to God. But here from the beginning, what does Israel do? They bring Egypt with them into the wilderness. Golden calf, eat, drink, rose up to play, sexual party. Unbelievable. That's a warning to you, Corinthians. You're doing the same thing. 
by eating the meat that's offered at these temples that's sacrificed to idols. Don't you play games with that. Because in Corinth was also sexual fertility cults. And so some of this meat that was being offered up to idols in the actual temple, you would worship these gods by also committing sexual acts. So Paul is warning the Corinthians, yes, you could eat meat you bought at a market, bring it home, have a barbecue, but don't you dare go to the temple and eat this meat and include yourself in these perverse acts. How dare you? Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And this is the definition of that rose up to play. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You want to see God's judgment? You want to see what happens when you play with sin? Ask Israel. Because when they drank, ate, and played, God killed 23,000 of them. Now, this is where I give you the four, because this, I'm going to give you two examples, because people cannot agree on whether this refers to an incident in Exodus 32, or if this refers to something in Numbers 25. So, I think both are possible, and I'm going to give you both, because they both apply, all right? I'm not going to choose one, and I'll tell you why in a second. 23,000 people. How do we know it refers to the golden calf incident? One, the sexual immorality rose up to play. But also, if you go down later in the chapter, in verse 28 of chapter 32, after Moses gets the word of what they did, and he pleads for God on their behalf, God issues judgment through the word of Moses, and he sends the sons of Levi out to kill these idolatrous perverts who were sinning in this way. And look at verse 28. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. The judgment of God fell upon them. And then if you go down seven verses later, what happened to the rest of the people who were worshiping the golden calf? Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And it doesn't tell you how many people died here. But add 3,020, it's 23,000 that fell in a single day. Very likely, even though it doesn't spell it out, it refers probably to this incident. 20,000 people probably fell in the plague. That's what happens when you drink and eat and rise up to play and play around with idols. You really want to do that, Corinthians? Now, what's the argument for Numbers 25? In Numbers 25, let's look at that. The events are the same. The number is a little bit different. In Numbers 25, 1 through 5, while Israel lived in Shatim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. I don't think I need to spell that out. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So they are getting the daughters of Moab, Gentiles, to come in. They're having sexual acts with them and then worshiping the gods of the Moabites. This is the people of Israel in the wilderness. Again, so we have sexual acts, we have drunkenness, we have idolatry. Look at verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So these men were slaughtered for their idolatry. For their perverseness of bringing the Moabite women and committing these sexual acts with them. And look at verse 8. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague, God sent another plague, were 24,000. In verse 8. 24,000. And so, here is two incidents. 
3,000 plus 20, the plague, Exodus 32. Here's 24,000 that fall here in Shatim for these sexual immoral acts. It's all the same application. If they're two separate events, which they are, if they are two separate events, but if which one is Paul referring to? It doesn't matter. They both did the same thing, and people died at the judgment of God. This is Paul's point. And why is Paul's bringing this up? Let them be an example to you when you play around with your freedom. Play with sin, get burned. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now Paul refers to another incident in the wilderness journey. An incident where the people of Israel again tested God. Complaining. They complained for 40 years against what God was doing in in them and through them in the wilderness. And they tested the patience of God and the goodness of God. And so what did God do? Look at verse 5 of chapter 21 of the book of Numbers. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're blaming God for them dying. They're the ones who are sinning. They're the ones breaking the commandments of God. For there is no food and no water, for we loathe this worthless food. They hated the manna. This is what you're going to give us? You're a good God and you're going to give us, what is it for breakfast every day? And they complained against God. They complained against Moses. They blamed God, testing God and his goodness. And then look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So what Paul's referring to. Numbers 21. Again, a little too loose with their liberty. Because what does liberty tell you? I deserve this. I deserve to have what I want in the wilderness. I deserve to have the meat in Egypt. I deserve to be comfortable, even though I was a slave. I always deserve this. It's better than that. And when you're exercising Christian liberty selfishly, with only knowledge and no love, that's what comes across your mind. So I have the right to this. Who cares what other people think? Who cares who it's going to hurt? I have the right to this. You're thinking just like an Israelite in Numbers. And Paul's bringing it up to warn them, don't be like that. Don't use your Christian liberty to put Christ to the test and use your liberty as a think something that you think you deserve and owe yourself. Run away from that. Why? Because here we go again. Many were destroyed by serpents. And you know the rest of the story. God tells Moses to lift up the bronze serpent on a pole. When the people look at Moses' staff being raised, they would be healed. God provided a way of salvation. Look at verse 10. Here's another incident. Here's the third one, or the fourth one, if you're counting the two I gave you. Nor grumble as some, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So here's the, the last one that Paul gives. This refers to the incident recorded in Numbers 16. All these in Numbers and Exodus. What happened in Numbers 16? Certain men were complaining about Moses and his leadership. They were blaming God like they typically did for God taking them out of Egypt by Moses. And these two or three men rallied up 250 other leaders to basically start a mutiny against Moses and against God. And so Moses confronts them and says, you know what? Let's put our leadership to the test. I'll tell you what. Let's all stand before God right here. And if you die of natural causes and you live past today, then may I be stricken down, and may you, the whole country, reject me as your leader, if these men survive. But if God destroys them, 
then you know who you ought to fear. God, and I'm his appointed servant. This is what's going down. It's a big showdown in Numbers 16. And so they rally around the 250 people, men burn incense unto the Lord. God, Moses puts them to the test. And Moses says, let's stand here and see what happens. And what happens? The earth opens up and swallows them whole. Moses even tells them what's going to happen. Moses says, if the earth doesn't open up and swallow you, reject me. Not only did it swallow those men, but fire from heaven fell and consumed the 250 men who followed after them. But it doesn't stop there. After the 250 men were burned by fire from heaven and the three men were swallowed by the earth, what happened? The Israelites thought that was not a little fair. They didn't think it was fair or right of Moses and God that they were being a little too harsh with the people. So God inflicts them with a plague. And 14,700 Israelites die. So when, Moses, when Paul writes here that many were overthrown in the wilderness, he got 23,000 fall in the day of the golden calf. Or at Shatim. You have 14,700 Israelites dying in this instance. You have other people who are dying by serpents. And Moses says, I'm writing this to you so you know what happens when you play with your Christian freedom. Learn from them. It doesn't end well. And the destroyer, the destroyer there is probably in reference to the night of the Passover, the 10th plague, taking the firstborn of Egypt. And it's used several other times throughout the Old Testament, the angel of death coming to institute God's wrath on the earth. Wow. Now, this is heavy stuff here. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people overthrown in the wilderness, Paul says. Why? Even though they had Moses, they had miracles, they had manna, they had water, they had Christ in the wilderness. It wasn't enough. And you, who have Christ and salvation and a church and the Lord's Supper and heaven to come, is it not enough that you have to play with sin? Is, is, it, if, is Christ not sufficient to meet your every need? That you have to crave and desire your former life? Look at verse 11. Now these things, the examples he just gave, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Again, he reminds them, you better learn from these guys. We're at the end of the ages. Yeah, Paul saw himself living in the last days. When are the last days? Have they begun? Absolutely. The last days is any time from the resurrection until Jesus comes back. We stand at the end of the ages. Therefore, look at verse 12. Therefore, there's our connecting word. Therefore, because we live at the end of the ages and because they are our examples, what do we do? Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Oh, Corinthians, don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. You think you can go to an idol's temple and enjoy the acts of sexual perverts eating the meat and enjoying their worship and it's not going to affect you? You're crazy. Oh, you who were alcoholics and struggled with alcohol your whole life and now you become a Christian and you're saying, well, you know, now I'm a Christian. Now I could have a few and it's not going to bother me. Don't be stupid. (coughs) 
Or you who lived a sexually promiscuous life before you were a Christian. Maybe who still struggle with lust or pornography or issues. And maybe you've got to guard your eyes and guard your mind. And you get a little too close to comfort. The things that remind you of your former life. And you say, oh, it's not going to affect me. Don't be stupid. Let anyone. That means anybody. This can happen to anyone. Anyone who thinks he stands. The word who thinks he stands here means who supposes or assumes. I'm okay. This won't affect me. This won't bother me. I can go to this party and be okay. I can hang out with this crowd and they'll be fine. I don't do the things they do. Oh, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. The word take heed there literally means to watch carefully. To observe, to take notice, to be aware. Oh, the minute you think you're okay, you're not. The minute you think that you are safe and this sin is not going to bother you, guess what? It will. In Genesis 3, when the serpent comes to Eve, Moses writes that the serpent was crafty. And subtle. He knows the tricks. To catch you off guard. To know. Hey. You're okay. The evil one wants you to think you're okay. The evil one wants you to let your guard down. When you're at work. Having a. Innocent. Flirtatious. Remark. With a coworker. Oh, it's just having fun. Be careful. Take heed. Adultery always begins with emotions, with the eyes, with fantasies. Take heed. Guard yourself. If you if you need to to prevent yourself from having a, committing adultery, quit your job and get another job. Your soul is much more valuable than that. Move away. Quit your job. This is why Jesus says, goes to extreme. Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. What Jesus is saying is, go to the extreme. Staying away from sin. Of course, Jesus is not promoting amputation. But he's speaking in such language to warn you. So sometimes we think we're okay with our freedom. And that's when we're not. Lest he falls. And the word fall there means to suffer ruin or be destroyed. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The immediate context here is eating meat in an idol's temple. Where sexual immorality is the way to worship that idol. It's just a stake. I'm a Jesus follower. But one in Rome, you know. No. You will suffer ruin. Live your life on guard. Live your life protecting your mind, protecting your heart. It only takes a second to do something stupid. And we've all been there. This is why... Again, in context, if we remember Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Before he gets into this chapter, given the examples of Israel. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he saying? I take heed. Unless I fall. I've got to be careful. I've got to watch out. I've got to guard myself. Oh, be careful, Corinthians. Be careful. You play around with sin, you will get burned. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
Oh, look, we all have struggles. We all have those weaknesses. We all struggle with something different. We all know ourselves really well. What is our weakness? But Paul says, whatever you're going through, guess what? You're not unique. The sins that you struggle with, guess what? Other people's have gone through the same thing. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Whatever you're going through, others also have battled it. Humanity has sinned in just about every way imaginable. You are human. You and I are unfaithful. Which is why we need to take our stand and be careful unless we fall down. There's no saying, nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows the struggle I have. Nobody knows the temptations I face. Yes, we do. We all sin the same way. It may look different in the end, but it all comes from the same nature that we all share together. Even though you think you stand, you will probably fall. But don't you make your sinful nature or an excuse, a reason for you to keep sinning. Well, it's just the way God made me. Just the way God made me. That's, that's an argument from the LGBTQ movement. Well, God made us like this. So this is who we are. No, it's not. You are dead in Adam. Your sin is expressed in that way like other people's sin is expressed in other ways. That's no excuse for you to stay in your sin. You need to repent and be born again. Trust Jesus Christ to be saved. Or maybe a man says, I've struggled with lust my whole life. I'm never going to get over this. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, you can through Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you'll never struggle, but you can overcome it. Many men have. Do never, never wave the white flag and surrender. No matter what your sin is. So Paul's trying to encourage them here. Now he's talking to people as what? Who have fallen. He's saying these things to people who thought they were standing firm, that this wasn't going to affect me, and guess what? It did. However, God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What we must remember every time we are tempted to sin. Listen to me. I want you to repeat this every time. You're you're prone to forget it, so get it in your brain. You're struggling with something to do that you know you shouldn't do. Remind yourself, God is faithful. I think oftentimes what we try to focus on is Stay faithful. Stay faithful, Dan. Stay faithful. You got this. No, we're not faithful. God is faithful. When we focus on ourselves, when we put the attention on ourselves, when we put the glory on ourselves, we are only setting ourselves up for failure because you are weak and so am I. But you know who isn't? God God is faithful. And what it says here is just remarkable. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. What does this mean? That God will keep you from the worst part of you. So nobody has an excuse to say this. Man, I was in this situation and I had no other choice. I just had to do it. I couldn't overcome it. Yes, you can in Jesus Christ. And if you're saying that you can't overcome your sin because you had no other choice but to sin, then what you're saying is this. God is not faithful. He's given me something that I cannot overcome. There are no excuses to sin. We can't just say, hey, I'm just broken. I was born wanting to do this. Guess what? You can't do that. That's a lie from hell. 
It's to say that God isn't faithful. It's to say that God will let you be tempted more than you're able to bear. That means that every time that you are tempted, you have a choice to make. You have to redirect your thoughts and attentions to a faithful God who can deliver you from this situation. Knowing that if God is If God has allowed this situation in your life, that you have the powers of the Holy Spirit to overcome it. You don't have to say yes. You can say no. You could say no. No temptation will overtake you that you can't stop because of your ability. And of course, he's talking to Christians who have the Holy Spirit. That's every Christian. The reason they can say no is because the Holy Spirit who lives inside of them enables them to make the right decisions, to change their affections, to resist temptation, and to honor God, to fear God. But God will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. Now, does that mean God tempts me to sin? No, that's not what it does. It does mean this. God is sovereign even over your stupidity. God is sovereign over your stupidity. God is sovereign knowing that this situation is too much. And he keeps you from the worst parts of yourself. That's what that means. That means that every time you're tempted, you can resist and run. There's never an excuse to say, I had no other choice. You could do the right thing because God is faithful. God does not tempt us to sin. We talked about this in our leadership group this morning, the word temptation in the New Testament. There's a positive temptation, which is like a testing from God. It's not to sin. But there's a negative temptation, which is always to sin. This is speaking of the negative. Everything is a test underneath a sovereign God. But if you sin, it's not God's fault. It's yours. It's not the devil's fault. You can never say, well, the devil made me do it. No. This is why James writes in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We sin because we want to, plain and simple. If you didn't want to sin, trust me, you wouldn't sin, and neither would I. It always comes from our desires. We are born dead in Adam with a nature that is prone to make these stupid decisions and rebel against the commandments of God. But this is why you need to be born again. Because a born again Christian is one who has two natures now. Not just the old one that wants to do evil. But a new nature and dwelt and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Who enables us to have right affections and to please and honor God. And these two natures are always are at war with one another. And it's because we possess this new nature that we can resist the temptation. And say no to our sin and run to God. So no one can say... It's God's fault. No one can say it's the devil's fault. No, if you make a stupid choice, it's your fault. That's what it is. And in that moment, in that time, you have the power because of the Spirit to resist, to run, to flee. And I know this because God is faithful. And he will not give you more than you can handle or resist. The moment that you sin... You fear something. You either fear what you will miss by sinning. Or you fear the God if you do this sin. And we are always going to do what, we, what holds the greatest fear in our heart at that moment. So when you resist temptation, your fear of God in that moment is stronger than your desire to sin. And so what it comes down to is having a fear of God. 
is having a love of God, an affection for God. So the scriptures command us again and again, fear God. For it's the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and is the power in itself by the spirit to produce us in us and able to endure and escape. And this is what he says here. God is faithful and with the temptation that we are enticed by our own desire, not God, he will also provide the way of escape. There's always an exit when t- with temptation. When you're tempted, you are never in a dead end. You're never locked in a closet. No other way out. No, there's always a fire exit. There's always an escape plan. And it's to run from your sin to God. God provides the way of escape. He provides the power to say no. He provides you the power to resist so that you can endure it. This is why the Israelites are examples for us of what not to do. Of what not to do. To use our liberty to get too close to the fire. The Israelites thought they were standing. They didn't take heed and now they've fallen. They thought they were okay. We're on this side of the Red Sea. We deserve better. Come on, God, give it to us. Perhaps why some of you sin in that way as well. The truth is, is that all of us in this room have fallen. All of us in this room will fall. And there's no escaping that reality. But this is where we remind ourselves that even though we fall, even though we fall, God is faithful. And God already knows all the stupid things you do before you do them. And he still loves you in spite of that. He loves you because of Christ. Because Christ went to the cross for all of your sins and has now declared you righteous in Christ based on the finished work of Jesus on that cross. That's not a license to just keep doing it because, well, God already knows I'm going to do it, so might as well do it. No! We run from sin knowing that God knows what we're going to do. Knowing that sin, even though I am a Christian and I am in Christ, will not bring eternal consequences. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Once I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ. But you know what? The dangers of sin, the consequences of sin, do bring devastating results in this life, don't they? Broken relationships. People crushed underneath the weight of guilt. Dealing with the consequences of their own sin, whether it's physical, spiritual, shame. There's human consequences to sin that we must bear, that God is trying to protect us from. Yes, we're saved from the eternal consequences of sin if we are in Christ But God gives you what you want. You want to play with sin? You want to take the risk of getting burned? Then you'll face the consequences in this life of doing so. So take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you disqualify yourself, like Paul says in chapter 9. Take heed and let the Israelites be an example that over though they had everything... Their liberty was their worst enemy. Take heed. And know this. And know this. Even though you and I can't. We can't be perfect. We can't do this well. Because we struggle and we fall. Know this. We have a Savior who never has. We have a Savior who not only died for us, but lived for us. We have a Savior who knows what it is to be tempted and yet not sin. And yet we rest in his victory and not ours. 
I'll conclude with Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us run to Christ every day, every day. Remind yourself of the gospel, who you are in Jesus, in spite of all your failures. And then repent, pick yourself up, move forward in Christ. But always being careful. Always being careful that you're not one step from tripping yourself up. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this warning, this passage. The examples the Israelites are to us in this wilderness journey, in our wilderness journey, God. May we take heed lest we fall. May we never play with sin, temptation. But God, when we do, may we repent and remind ourselves of the gospel, confessing our sins to you so that we can continue to grow in the holiness in this life, God, so that we may be found faithful to you. But God, in spite of our unfaithfulness, we know that you are faithful, providing a way of escape. Every temptation is not an opportunity to give in, it's an opportunity to run. And God, may you empower our obedience. May you empower our hatred of sin. May you empower our love of Christ. May you amplify our fear of God in our daily walk so that we may rightfully fear you more than we fear missing out on whatever feeling we may get, pleasure we may get from whatever sin that we think we need to hold on to. Oh God, sanctify your people now through the word. As we remember Christ in the Lord's Supper, help us to remember Jesus. May you feed us with his spiritual presence, nourish our souls, strengthen our faith, producing in us, God, what you want through this ordinance as this means of grace to live for you and to confess and repent of our sin. Help us, God, be careful. Help us, God, to not fall, to pay attention, and to remember Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.